Let us turn now to first or to Genesis, the first book inside of the Bible. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to chapter one and to look briefly. I'm going to read several different things, and then we're going to read a longer chapter or, or a section of a chapter. But inside the book of Genesis, this is the creation of all things. And we notice here that God creates out of nothing, that he is a, an artist, that he is the master artist, that he is the greatest artist of all time, and he creates eventually light in his creation. And as, as we see in verse 4, it reads and says, and God saw that the light was good. Then he moves down further and read with me, he's starting to create waters and the, uh, the expanse of heaven. He sees morning and day, evening, all these sorts of things. And then we see in verse 10, after God creates these things and God saw that it was good. He continues on putting vegetation on this creation and trees. Um, he takes seeds and they bear fruit. And we see now in Genesis chapter 1 verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Then we begin to see that in this expanse of the heavens, that there is day and that there is night, that there are uh, great lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, this great expanse of the universe. And in verse um, 18 of this chapter, it says, And God saw that it was good. Then we begin to see that the waters and the swarms of living creatures, that the, there are birds and upon the earth in this expanse, and we see in verse 21, and God saw that it was what? It was good. He continues on, and he be, creates uh, not just creatures within the water, but he begins to create livestock. He begins to create cows and horses and the beasts of the earth. And we see here in chapter 1 of Genesis, in verse 25, and God saw that it was, help me out, it was good. It was good. Then we see a transition in verse 26. He creates this earth out of the void, out of the nothing. And he goes to verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, and he says this, follow along with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the creeping, li the every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I had given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every plant food for food, every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening. And there was morning on the sixth day. 
Genesis chapter 1, we're going to come back to Genesis chapter 2 in just a moment, but in Genesis chapter 1, you can imagine a 35,000 foot view. If we're watching this as a movie, you're, you're in the blackness of the abyss, like you're far off from this ball that is in the sky, and then um, the cinematographer begins to zoom in on this, and you hear James Earl Jones or somebody reading this passage to you as it begins to develop, Right? So we see this kind of from a distance point of view, and then in chapter 2, it's not a new creation, it's the same creation, um, but from up close. So notice, and begin to read with me, now in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15 through the following, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Notice verse 18, a transition. Then the Lord God said, It is not what? Good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper, make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to the every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." The word woman there in Hebrew is isha, and because she was taken out of ish is man. So literally, Adam names his wife woman. As he's named all the other creatures, he names her, and you can tell that it's a feminine connection to man. Because why? She is from him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray briefly. Lord Jesus, illuminate yourself to us, Lord. Let us see the meaning of marriage. Let us see its greater purpose and its greater mission here today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, if we were to jump ahead to 1 Corinthians, which we're not going to, but just to give you a preview of why we're doing this text today, is because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and some other places in, that we're heading this fall, is Paul is going to address the issues of marriage. He's going to address um, issues of singleness, um, issues of ministry. He's going to talk about a wide variety of these things, but it's important for us to have a theology of marriage. Because if we don't have a clear definition of what marriage is from a biblical perspective, then you and this culture, as we have seen, will go all over the place in trying to define it and trying to implement 
um, new definitions and um, new even laws that allow things that God never intended. Now, if you're here today and you're thinking, well, I'm not married, Eric. I'm, I'm a single person as of right now, but I long to be married. Well, I've been training specifically young men, um, and for many years now, I was thinking this morning on my way to church that I've known Justin since I was in my 20s. I'm 44 now, all right? So this is a long time that God has enabled me to be a part of specifically, not in my own life, but in the, the raising up of young men in order, before they ever got married, that they would establish and understand that you are trained and learned how to be a faithful husband or a faithful wife before you're married, okay? That there's an importance that you have, a, again, a strong understanding of the biblical text of this God-ordained gift. But our temptation is, is to drift from what God has ordained. That's why we call this sermon series, Fight the Drift. Our culture has way drifted from what God has set in these standards, in this uh, love book that is before us, this grand narrative that we, within this culture, for our non-Christians, um, and even people who are professing to have a relationship with Jesus, have greatly drifted from these biblical understandings and definitions of what is marriage. That's why we call the drift is something that we needed to fight. But what is the drift? The drift is is a result of Christian being deceived by their old way of thinking, their flesh, causing a very subtle turning aside or wandering of their mind and heart where they're drawn away toward careless forgetfulness of what is true to the point where they unknowingly loosen their grip on the cross as they leave the way in which the Lord their God commanded them to walk God's way and instead give themselves over to doing what is seen as right and good in their own eyes. They did it their way or by their own feelings. This is a person who is professing to have a relationship with Jesus and yet has greatly drifted away from who Jesus is. They're blind to Jesus. They're blind to his ways. They create their own ways. There's this, this historian, an African um, theologian named Augustine. And Augustine once said that it is interesting when people say that they believe the gospel. When the reality is, is a lot of people only believe certain sections of the Bible and then disagree with or don't practice or create their own versions of other portions of the Bible. Augustine would go on to say, well, what's, what's true about that person is, if they're doing that, is that they don't ultimately believe the Bible. That we don't get to pick and choose the portions that we're going to obey or that we're going to submit to, but rather all of life, for those of us who are truly in Jesus, then, we will fight this temptation. Now, cards on the table, all of us are tempted to do what I just read. All of us are tempted to drift away. We're constantly battling this drift. Every one of us who are in Christ, of every moment of the day, are fighting this current that is with the culture, that is with sin, Satan, death, and the way that they, they do those things. And we are constantly being drifted or, or being forced by the, the current of this 
world and of sin, Satan, and death. And yet the gospel reminds us that those of us who are in Christ have now become new, Christian, uh, new creations and we now are empowered by the Holy Spirit that apart from Christ, we would always go that way. And yet in Christ, we now have the power to fight against that drift. Follow me? Fighting the drift is having a heightened awareness of the relentless, sinful, deceitful flesh whose default setting is always to get far from God and God's way. The Christian prays that the Holy Spirit will help strengthen them, encourage them, and intentionally seek ways of remembering what is true as they tighten their grip upon the cross, walk after God, hold fast to the Word, and by faith give themselves over to wholly doing what is right and good in the eyes of God. See, the drift is our way. Fighting the drift leads us back to God's way. Friends, there is a great war. There are many of them going on. One of the greatest spiritual wars that we've been enduring and experiencing over the last of many years is the attack on marriage itself. Not only in our own homes, but in our own culture, as culture constantly is asking us to redefine it. It is no longer between a man and a woman. But that marriage is pretty much just a a chain and ball and chain that has been placed on us that really makes no sense for us modern or postmodern or post post postmodern enlightened individuals. And yet that is not what we see in the scripture. Remember, God creates out of nothing and it is what? It's good. He says this about seven times in the first chapter. He creates all of these things, then he creates man and he creates woman, and he says it is very good. But God also notices something. He, he begins to notice, and he knew this all along. He did not learn this. This is just spoken in the inspiration of Scripture, but God knows all things. He does not learn things, but in his creative order, he had always had planned that this, this creature named Adam, this man, this human, this male, that when he would compare himself to all of these other animals, that, that he would realize that, that this is not good. Notice in the readings is that there's always pairings within the book of Genesis. Right? There's nothingness, and then there's something. There's light, and then there's darkness. Right? There's always these pairings, and yet, in creation, at the very beginning, there was not a pair for Adam. There was not a pair for Adam. It was good, 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 it was good. But it is not good for Adam to be alone. Now, please understand something. Adam is not lonely. There's a difference. Adam isn't complaining about God. Now, ladies, I'll probably get the loudest amen I've ever gotten from some of you right now. Have you ever noticed that, that males like to pout? I'll take the snickering as an amen. Males like to pout. All right? Get silent, 
Drop that bottom lip. Drop that head. Pouting around. What's wrong? Nothing. Mm, mm, mm. Right? We like, we like to pout. Now, this is pre-fall. Adam is enjoying the garden. He is alone, but he is not lonely. Why? Because he walks with God. He walks with God in this magnificent garden that you and I and John Carpenter, or not John Carpenter, who's the other Carpenter guy, the uh, Avatar people, if you've seen all that, right? Greater than J.R.R. Tolkien's um, Lord of the Rings. And if you've seen those movies, then, then you can just imagine this, just this completely immersive world and environment that Adam is in. It has not been tainted by sin. He walks with God. He's like, oh, that's a long-necked thing. I'm going to call that giraffe, right? That's a hippopotamus. That's, that's a dog. Cats come after the fall. Sorry, cat people. He's naming all of these things. He is having a fantastic time, buck-necked, running through the fields and the waters. All right? It is God who deems... It is not good for this man to be alone. But he too needs a what? A pair. That this man, Adam, needs a helper. Now, ladies, before you freak out that the Bible calls you a helper, guess who else it calls a helper? God. It is not a derogatory term. Later in the New Testament... What is the Holy Spirit called? Helper. It is not one of great authority for the sake of authority, um, but rather a companion, a friend, a helper to come alongside of him to do what God has already told him to do. And what is that? To expand this garden. The garden did not cover the entire earth, but rather it was Adam and his wife, who he would name Eve, the mother of all things, this woe man, this, this flesh of flesh and bone of bone of him, that they would work this garden and yet they would not sweat. They would work this garden and yet there would not be thorns and thistles and, and bugs and all of these sorts of things, that they would work this garden, that they would be fruitful and multiply, that they themselves, their family would expand, but also that this garden, this kingdom, as God has given the keys of this kingdom to this man and to this woman, that their role was to steward God's grand creation, make it more. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. So Adam is put to sleep, all right? I would not suggest this, but as a new Christian who first was reading the Bible in college, when I first started dating Laura, I had a pet name. Now it's Beauty. I call her Beauty, but uh, in college, do not do this. I would walk into a room and I'd be like, what's up, Rib? Don't do that. They do not like that. And yet, Adam is put to sleep. A rib is taken from him, and a woman, Eve, is created from this. God awakens Adam, and Adam realizes the gift of how Eve is like him in ways that animals are not. 
he, how do I say, this next Sunday, feels differently toward her. There is something awakening about her presence. She is like him, not like the animals, and yet she is beautifully different. Like two puzzle pieces. They, they connect. There is male and there is female. And they, as the Bible tells us, is created in the image of God. And yet, they're not God. And yet, Adam is like Eve. And yet, she is not like him. And yet, there is grand likeness. Notice how in Genesis 2.18... Again, the Bible tells us it's good, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. She will be like, different, and yet complement him. She will be a dependable friend to labor with him in the garden. Please, single friends, stop saying we are much better friends than we are boyfriend and girlfriend. Because a truly healthy biblical marriage is centered around or offset from Christ is friendship. That there is a companionship there. Though the relationship between man and an animal is beautiful, it is not sufficient. Though, though later we will see the significance of same gender, like male-to-male friendship or, or female-to-female Friendship, it is, it is not ultimate. We, we see a relationship between a man and woman as being deemed very good. We will eventually talk about in this sermon series, um, singleness. We'll also talk about the gift of singleness, and you need to understand the difference. Most people do not have the gift of singleness, right? Some of you are still single, and you're like, well, I guess I have the gift of singleness. No, you're just really lonely, and you ain't found the one yet. That's different from the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness is a person who could get married, and yet God has gifted them in a specific way to not get married in order to do the will of God without the, and I say this respectfully, the distraction of marriage. Most people do not have that gift. God created us to be married. He created us to have relationship, a male-to-male relationship, not a romantic relationship in that way, a female-to-female relationship, not, not in a romantic way, but in a, in a friendship way. And yet, he's taken these two pieces that are like but different, and he has put them together in order to accomplish something great. This complementing of one another would be further illustrated in, in physical intimacy. They are bone of bone, and they are flesh of flesh. But it's important for us to understand this morning that if we're going to have a theology of marriage, is to understand that God, not man, created marriage. Doesn't matter what culture says about it. Doesn't matter what culture, how they try to redefine it. This is an invention of God. This is a creation of God. God allows you and I to create many things, right? And yet this institution 
is from him. He defines the terms. He defines the covenant. He defines what this relationship is about. God creates as the supreme creator. He dictates the covenant, the experience, and its purpose. It is ordained and instituted by God, not man. It is divinely designed. With this gift, God places Adam and Eve in a covenant relationship and a public relationship. Marriages are not to be done in solitude, but they are a public. They're to be witnessed by the public. Right? They're to be done amongst other witnesses. But before God and these witnesses, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Outside of salvation, marriage is one of the greatest gifts is one of the greatest gifts. It should be seen as that, though. A gift, not the God. That's why single friends, yet to be married friends, you are not, in God's kingdom, some second-rate citizen. The ultimate goal is not marriage. The ultimate goal is God. You have a very specific purpose. You're not less than. Rather, in this season and time, unless you have the gift of singleness, you're simply a person in waiting for the groom. You're a person waiting for the bride. But so many times in our culture, relationships have become God. The God of your life has a name, her name. The God of your life has a name, his name. We, we live in a hookup culture. We live in a culture that has, again, drifted away from God's holy standard, from his grand design in order to infiltrate and to create our own versions of these things. I mean, I'm so glad that I'm not on the dating scene anymore. Maybe it helped a brother out like me, I don't know, but they, they don't have to do the hard work anymore. You just swipe one way or the other. In this hookup culture of people claiming that they love each other and yet spending time, too much time probably, and, and doing things that is only designated and provided with boundaries for those of us who are married. And yet, people all the time will submit to them as I once did repeatedly over and over and over and over again, giving ourselves to these small g gods or goddesses, rather than submitting our lives to the ultimate God, the one who designed this beautiful image. This is led, and the reason for this is because of Genesis chapter 3 that we don't have time to go into today. But all of what was good crumbles as Adam and Eve submit and surrender to themselves. They drift. They desire to be God. They desire to create an own ver their own version of this earth, their own mission. And because of that, the Bible will tell us now that sin has come to all of us. So we must understand, friends, that God's perfect design is not what you and I are currently experiencing. Our desire is to 
reflect, if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, that within our marriages or one-day marriages is that we're wanting to go pre-Genesis 3 in that experience. That we're fighting the drift to just have a marriage like Genesis 3 and beyond, but rather that you and I who are in Christ are wanting to seek to come back to God's original design. We're wanting to see that. We're fighting for that experience, even this side of the fall. That's our aim, is to get back to God's original purpose in these things. For you and I to have a God-honoring, healthy marriage, then you and I must understand that we must have a strong theological perspective of marriage. The Bible never speaks of dating. Is there room for it? Probably. But only if you have a theology of what marriage is. The purpose of dating is to get married. The purpose of dating isn't for you to, um, you know, bewilder and break each other and get back together, break up, get back together, break up, get back together for years and years and years, just left wandering. That's defrauding each other. It's actually really disobedient. It's pure evil. The calling of the scripture is, is to understand from a theology of marriage is that even if I'm going to date, even if I'm going to whatever you guys call it now, that the goal ultimately is to find that friend, is to have this experience with a helper. That's why it's extremely important that you should never, as a, uh, if you're going to date as a Christian, is that you should never date someone who doesn't have the same beliefs as you. We do see that in Scripture. That there is a breakdown when people try to engage in relationships, specifically those of a romantic sense, with people who do not have the same beliefs as they have. So in spite of sin, we've learned, as we did earlier, that since Christ has come into our lives, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit and can pursue a different kind, a biblical relationship that will go completely countercultural to what we're seeing taking place within this world. Now, I know our tendency is, is if you've ever been to the church before, our primary way of doing this uh, from a pastoral perspective is to really spend about the next hour, uh, next five weeks, next eight weeks, giving you a really pragmatic, that means practical, like a how-to to make your marriage better, Right? So we'll spend time, and if you've ever been to these sorts of things, and I'm not saying that there's never a place for them, but all of that is counterproductive if we don't have a theology of marriage to begin with. So many times, people are having rocky relationships. You're having marital issues. And yes, you should be running to God's word. You should be running to prayer. You should be running to biblical counseling. You should be running to your pastors, your missional community group. You should be running to all of those things with these issues. But I I, want to lay this before you. That just husbands take out the trash more, and there will be more intimacy. That is called manipulation. That is not called the Bible. But so many, and you've got to be careful going to the Christian bookstore and buying Christian books on marriages, because if you really break them down, what ultimately ends up happening is they're books about manipulation and not books about a theology of marriage. 
So, if we have this gift that is marriage, then what is the ultimate purpose of this thing called marriage? Last week, as we concluded Psalm chapter 9, I shared with you and tried to lay before you a theology of worship, that what is worship? Started with a big, heavy theological uh, seminary type of definition, then gave you another definition, and then I just put it, you know, brass tacks down here on the bottom shelf so that all of us understand. You were created to worship Jesus. You were created to worship God. But what is worship? Simply put, what we can see inside of Scripture so that we can understand this and have handles among, amongst ourselves on what does it mean to worship Jesus is to put it like this. It's to simply put it that I'm going to focus on Jesus in all that I do. Look to Jesus. I'm going to read the word about Jesus. I'm going to pray to Jesus. I'm going to obey Jesus. I want to know Jesus. My eyes are on Jesus. And because my eyes are so much on the Jesus of the Scripture, then, and He reveals Himself as being so grand and so beautiful and so magnificent because I see Him as being the ultimate worth in all of my life because He is God, because He is Lord, because He is King, and He is the most beautiful thing ever, then I'm going to live my life in response to that beauty. Now, I knew where we were heading this morning. And so that last week's sermon was an introduction to this week's sermon. Because the purpose of your marriage is to worship Jesus. That is the purpose of your marriage. The purpose of your marriage is to worship Jesus. So, so in your marriage, you're going to individually focus on Jesus. Like the beauty of Jesus is more beautiful than she is. The beauty of Jesus is more handsome than he is. The, the beauty of Jesus eclipses each other's beauty for each other, but that you're so obsessed with Jesus that the grandest thing is, I think John Piper initially wrote this as a poem for his son in a, in a wedding vow, but he, he said that the greatest thing that a husband can do, the greatest thing that a bride can do is to love her spouse, to love his spouse less than they love Jesus. then they love Jesus. So as individuals, you are both pursuing after Jesus. You're both can find each other, um, you know, sitting in your comfortable couch or on your chair, engaging in the Word of God. You're not waiting for the other one to say, okay, it's time for family devotional. Anybody try that? Those can be really awkward. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But dads, if you think that you're going to work through a systematic theology as I've tried in an hour to your four-year-old, it is not going to end well. But it's no, it's, it's I love this person, 
But in spite of what this person is doing, I also, we, though we are together, I have an individual relationship with the Lord. So many people that I'm interacting with right now are blaming their spouse for where they are in their relationship with Jesus. Well, he just won't go to church. Well, I'm not going to go then. Well, you're not going to stand before your husband one day. You're going to stand before an almighty God. Well, 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 Pastor Eric, I just, I just can't get her to go to missional community. I can't, I can't get her to do this. I can't get her to do that. Well, well, brother, you've got to be faithful. Why? Because as a Jesus follower, your focus is on Jesus. And then in worship, you focus on Jesus and then respond accordingly. What if I was to tell you that ultimately, that in your marriage, it's not about the person that is sitting next to you or that you share rings with? But the purpose of that marriage is actually because of the Jesus that is sitting on the other side of you. That you so love Jesus that the first one who gets to be the recipient of your obedience is your wife, is your husband. That in spite of what they do, who do you ultimately surrender to? Jesus. No matter what side of the bed that they wake up on that morning, how are you to respond? Well, when your focus is on Jesus, you can't focus too much on them because you're just going to beat each other to death or yell and scream and hoop and holler and give each other the silent treatment, right? You try to address something with each other, and immediately the person who's being addressed will goes, well, you, 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 don't blank, 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 Right? The thing is, is in spite of this person, their warts, their attitudes, their, their bed head, their bad breath, their attitude, their laziness, their overworking, all of those things, is that you are responding not to this person ultimately, is that you're going to respond because your focus is on Jesus. So when your focus is on Jesus, you don't have to be asked to take out the trash. You're looking for the trash to take out. When you're focusing on Jesus, then, then, man, you're looking of ways that, man, how can I honor Christ by serving this person that is next to me? In the garden, we see focus on God. We see relationship. We see creation. We see procreation. And we see this further illustrated in Jesus that he will even ask in, in the Gospels, he's asked about marriage, and Jesus comes right back to Genesis. And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave. For this reason, for no other reason, but for the sake of this woman, for the care of this woman. I'm going to obey Jesus at all cost, and, and my bride, my husband, you will get to see it ultimately, the, the first fruits of my obedience to God, obedience to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will get to witness first my love for Christ. And because I so love Christ, then I lay down my life for you. See, a marriage is more about your discipleship. It's more about your sanctification. And if you're new to church, the word sanctification is, to nail that really small down, is the process by which God makes you more like Jesus. 
And I don't know that there's anything more forming and revealing of that process than being married, especially this side of the vault. Some of you have heard me say this before. Laura and I have been together now 23 years. 24 years, somewhere around there, total. And I, yeah, I don't tell her. I'll look over this way. I don't know that there's a person on the planet that's made me happier. And I don't know that there's a person on the planet that's made me more angry. I don't know that there's a person on the planet that's made me more sad. Uh, I got one, my son. Two. She's number two. All right? I don't know that there's a person that's made me more frustrated. And yet, apart from salvation, Laura Baker, you're still the best thing to ever happen to me. It took me a long time to learn this in my early marriage that I wasn't taking out the trash for my wife, that I wasn't doing the dishes for my wife, that I wasn't vacuuming for my wife, I wasn't washing the car for my wife, I wasn't mowing the yard. I had to learn that ultimately all of those mundane tasks, that I am not doing them for Laura, but that I must do them as worship to God, as worship to Jesus. Do you see that? I take out the trash for Jesus, not my wife. She gets to reap the benefits of it. I'm on my grass because ultimately that land is the Lord's land. It's one piece of the garden that he has given to me. And I need to steward that. I'm not mowing the grass for my wife. I'm growing the grass for the Lord. I'm cooking not for my wife. I'm, I'm cooking for myself. <laughs> but I'm supposed to be cooking for the Lord, and then my kids and myself get to reap the benefits of that. You, do you follow me? It's like, again, it's, it's because there's something greater out there. Because if I don't see that, if Laura cops an attitude or gets all sassy or is laughing in the other room, then guess what I don't want to do? Take out the trash, do the laundry. I don't do laundry, sorry. I will shrink everybody's stuff. Mow the grass, all of those sorts of things. It can't be in response to her. It's got to be in response to God. God in, is discipling you. He's sanctifying you in that marriage. That's why in the New Testament we have several verses. The first one I want to read is this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I just said a cuss word. It's called Submitting. Doesn't mean enslaved to. This is in response to Jesus. Notice it's to one another. It's mutual submission, and yet that submission to Christ is going to look different. Notice as Paul keeps going, wives submit to your own husbands. That doesn't mean that wives submit to all men. And again, you have to understand that word submit. How does she submit? As to the Lord. Well, I submit to him depending on his, his, his attitude today. No, that's not what it says. I'm submitting in spite of him. Because who is she ultimately submitting to? The Lord. Again, this isn't a ruling or a dictatorship. 
This isn't an overblown authority um, by the ego of the man. That's why you've got to keep reading and don't just cherry pick out verses. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, that term, in everything, isn't everything. All right? We don't submit to your spouse, your husband, in sin. There are things that you should do not submit to him because this is what the Bible says in order for you to get beat to death or yelled and screamed at or emotionally abused. That's not what this passage is saying. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might be present the church present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way, in what way was that? In the way of Christ that we just read about. Husbands shall love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of the body. Therefore shall a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying it at, that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let us each one of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Does how you interact in your marriage, does it reflect or is it in response to your relationship with Jesus? Because we see, according to the scripture, that it does. The way you interact with your husband, the way that you interact with your wife, should be out of reverence for Christ, as to the Lord. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way. So that while there is mutual submission, she submits as a helping role. He submits, though, to what? To death. To death, gentlemen. Much of the responsibility of what's happening within your home rests on your shoulders. Because that's where the Bible places it. See, here's the thing, guys. If you're living like Christ in your home, I've noticed this in my own life because I've both been obedient and I have failed miserably at this. When I am reflecting Christ, when Christ is my focus, Eric Baker's focus, when Christ is my focus and I'm responding in worship to who Christ is, then guess what is really easy for Laura Baker to do? Submit. She runs to do that because she understands that what Jesus is calling to us in this passage, it's that the man who's the most powerful person in the room, Jesus, that what does he do? He came not to be served, but to serve, the Bible says. Who becomes the ultimate submitter in a biblical marriage is the man He's, she is called to submit, yes. He is called to death. The tiredest person in the house should be daddy. Because he understands that second shift, 
which is what you do from the time that you come home from your job, is the most important shift of the day. That the needs, the emotional needs of your wife and of your kids and of your home, that all these things are way more important, and yet we have drifted to the place where we will give all that we've got to the people at work, and just so you know, they will fire you and replace you tomorrow, but that's another topic for another day. But the things that you think are so valuable and so important, you are, you are completely replaceable at work, and yet Fellas, we will give all of our identity to those things and give our kids and our wives the scraps. I know I've done it. Young Eric was a mess. Young Eric didn't have a man, a godly man, showing him a better way. We die a thousand deaths daily, gentlemen. We never, you never rule your, you know, raise your voice. And definitely don't ever say, submit to me, woman, because that's what the Bible says. You just become a spiritual abuser at that point. You don't live your life braggatociously. You live your life humbly, serving Serving them. And when you do, they respond. Because why? You love Jesus more than you love them. They just get to be their first recipients of it. Let's go to the next uh, slide. Two others. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything for it pleases the Lord. Again, your relationship with your husband, your relationship with your wife definitely reflects your relationship with Jesus. Go on to 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Notice this Peter verse, gentlemen. The relationship between you and Jesus can become distant. I'm not saying that it's broken, but I'm saying that there's distance in that relationship. Like you can be reading the Bible all you want to, you can be praying, you can be preaching sermons, you can be going to Bible studies, you can be doing all of these things, and yet, if you're treating your wife in a bad way, that that is greatly affecting your relationship with the Lord. Every one of us in here who are married are going to stand before, and, and single as well, are going to stand before an almighty God. But if you are married, you're going to stand before an almighty God and give an account for how you treated the person sitting next to you. So does it matter? Absolutely it matters. God is trying to grow us. He's trying to mature us. And he's given us this great gift called marriage. I hate it when I hear people dog on marriage. I hate it when I hear dudes at the, you know, places, and I hear them say, my old lady, my old lady, my old lady. I'm like, I'm going to throat punch you in the name of Jesus. All right? I'm about to turn into table flipping, whipping Jesus. I want a sword in my hand riding a white horse, and I want to be really good with it. All right? Because it's so disrespectful. Again, have been perfect in all these things? No. Because you know what else the, the marriage is supposed to do? It's a prime opportunity to put the gospel on display. Does yours? Like if you and I go out to eat, like if we go on a double date, you ever been on a double date with somebody and it gets real awkward because of who you're sitting across from? 
right? And you're thinking to yourself, if they act like this in public, how are they going to act not in public? Our gospel, marriages, our gospel is on display toward each other, but also the gospel is on display for everyone else. Like if all I had was to look at your marriage, would I see the gospel, brother and sister in Christ? Would I see Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Or just a whole lot of Genesis 3? I love what Kathy Keller, it's Tim, Pastor Tim Keller, his wife, he says that, she says that, that marriage is the opportunity for both people in the marriage to play the Jesus role. We get to be both the submitter, because Jesus is willing to submit to God in all things, and yet we also get to sacrifice. Marriage is not about your happiness. I say this every time I teach on marriage. Marriage is not about your happiness, but your holiness. It's not about your sanity, that's for sure. Can I get one amen this morning? It is not about your sanity. Because you're going to think you crazy. It's about your sanctification. It's not about getting your needs met by another person, but realizing only God can fulfill your needs. God is going to use marriage to bring you to an end of yourself. Ultimately, your marriage is not about you, but it's about God and illustrating God's character to each other and the world. Marriage is about discipleship. Marriage is about learning. Marriage is illustrated in, in becoming. How can I become more like Jesus? Again, Pastor Tim Keller, he says, only if you have learned to serve others by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the power to face the challenges of marriage. Unlike this movie that I'm not suggesting that you watch, Tobey Maguire, of which he says, you complete me. This is the way of the world. It is not the way of the scripture. You are demanding something out of someone that they can never be, nor were they ever meant to carry the weight of being your personal savior. Only Jesus can do that. I love as well in their book from Kathy and, and Tim Keller, how, how they, they use this illustration to say that we are both broken, sinful, prideful, selfish. Marriage brings out the very best and the very worst of us all. And yet, for those of us in Christ who stay married, and either in our death or in the return of Jesus, that a little bit of this conjecture, but... The beauty of standing before an almighty God next to your husband or next to your wife and seeing them changed into their glorified body, given their glorified name. I mean, can you imagine? Like, to stand before an almighty God, I hope that God allows us that opportunity. And as, as they've said in, in this book, it's a great good book called The Meaning of Marriage, but Tim Keller says, in that moment when you see that change from wife to sister, that you look at her and And you say, I always knew that you could be like this. 
always knew that you could be like this. And her look at you and say, I always knew that you could be like this. Look at you. Isn't that going to be a moment? Look at you. Like we made it through all of this by the power of Jesus. And now great is our reward as we become brothers and sisters, no longer husband and wife, but brothers and sisters in Christ forever and ever and ever. And we look at each other and say, I always knew that you could be like this. To use a piece of the scripture and throw my own little twist to it. For what does it profit a man if he has a great marriage and yet forfeits his soul? Why? Because the ultimate goal isn't a good marriage. You can not be a Christian and have a good marriage. The ultimate goal is God. I want to be like Jesus. So I'm going to be overtly gracious when bad things are done to me. And I'm going to seek repentance and forgiveness when I'm the one doing the bad things. And how do we see this all play out? We see this ultimately play out in the greatest groom of all. And his name is Jesus. He, he walks with us. He talks with us. He lives with us. Jesus knows everything about us. And in spite of knowing the depths of our depravity, the depths of our heart, he knows all of those things. And in desiring to obey God and to be faithful to God above what we deserve, he worships God, and instead of punishing us for all of our faults, he takes our punishment. Rather than giving us what we deserve, he worships God. And who are the first recipients of this worship? Those of us in Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't ultimately about you, friends. It was about God. And because he obeyed God, we reap the benefits. So friends, wherever your marriage is today, wherever your life is today, man, let's, let's pursue it in focus of Christ. Keeping our eyes on Christ and then respond accordingly. There's much more to say here much more that we need to dive into. But if we don't have a theology of marriage, then the rest of all that pragmatic stuff and practice stuff and, you know, uh, get up every morning and do this together and go to bed doing this together and uh, send each other text messages, all that stuff is, is, is good, fine, and dandy. But if you don't understand the original purpose of marriage, all of that is just works without faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Father, for your mercy, for your grace here today. Lord, may you just be magnified, lifted high in all these things. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. This morning we